Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Carrie Gino continues our series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Today, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 33. Now, here's Carrie. Jana Joan writes, During the day, I take a few moments to unwind reading the Bible. After seeing me do this for several years, my four-year-old daughter became concerned. Mommy, aren't you ever going to finish reading that book? Many of today's Christians who read the Bible find it difficult to believe that worshiping other gods would have ever been a problem either for Israel or first century Christians. Maybe that's because we have never stopped to analyze what the attraction was. For one thing, Israel wanted to be like other nations, even in its religion. Being different is a problem that is still difficult for God's people to accept. So they too wanted a God who was visible. The instinct to have an experience with the living God and to honor him by erecting a building is still with us. But one of the real attractions of most idol worship is that the nature of people is to want something visible. We're in that portion of Paul's letter where he is responding to questions that are asked of him. And the particular question that Paul is addressing at this stage has to do with the reality that Corinth was a city filled with pagan temples. Temples which many of the Corinthian Christians had frequented all their lives and which a number of them, we don't know how many, but a number of them were still going to these temples for meals or to take part in various festivals or perhaps even for business reasons. This they did even though they had converted to Christianity. Their attendance at the pagan temples for meals and festivals was upsetting some of their brothers and sisters whose consciences were troubled over this issue. And that fact alone, as Paul argued in chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, that fact alone should have been enough to dissuade these temple-going Corinthians from claiming what they felt was their perfect right and freedom. It should have been enough to persuade them to give up their attendance at the temple, for the sake of the body of Christ, and for the sake of all their brothers and sisters who were being encouraged to imitate them in this behavior, even though their consciences were not clear. That situation by itself should have been enough to make them stop, but it wasn't. Here is a group of Christians who are far from what they should be. I can think of a lot of names by which the Corinthians could be identified or described, but dearly loved ones is not one of them. What we see here is that no matter what the Corinthians thought or did, Paul still loved these saints. What he is about to say to them is written with the kindest intentions and the deepest of affections. He is speaking to those whom he loves. Paul tells the Corinthians that to partake of the bread at the Lord's table is to symbolically proclaim 
that we have identified with our Lord's body. The one loaf symbolizes one body of which all Christians have partaken and are a part. To partake of the cup is to symbolically commemorate the fact that we have become partakers in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the cancellation of sins which it accomplished through faith in his atoning death on the cross at Calvary. There were individuals in the church in Corinth who felt that the fact that they had been baptized and had partaken of the Lord's Supper made them immune to the temptations of idol worship. Just as a person who has taken shots that immunize them against a specific virus is not afraid of catching it, the Corinthians felt that once they had been baptized and had taken the Lord's Supper, they were immune to any danger. Paul tells them, don't find your security in ceremonies of religion. Find it instead in the living God himself. We can't trust in religious ceremonies that do not guide us into a different kind of life. So if Paul's warning was, don't rely on the ceremonies of religion to protect you, his affirmation was, God is interested in how you live your life. Paul sets a table, or rather two tables, side by side. The Lord's table is a table around which the Corinthians gather every week to commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord by partaking of the symbols of the bread and the wine. Some of the Corinthians have felt at liberty to sit at another table, the table which is served as part of a pagan ritual at which idols are worshipped and to which sacrifices are made. The things which are eaten at this table have been sacrificed to an idol, or they are at least a part of a pagan ritual. In dealing with this matter, Paul establishes several principles upon which he bases his conclusion. The pagan ritual of eating a meal, of which a portion is that which was sacrificed in heathen worship, was a communion service as well. The heathen worshippers are celebrating a communion service when they eat what was sacrificed to an idol. There are no other gods. Idols are nothing because they represent gods which don't exist. But false worship is not harmless and insignificant. This is where the Corinthians went wrong. Paul says that the worship of idols is the worship of demons. Christians cannot be partakers of two tables, for one is the table of the Lord and the other is the table of demons. Just as no one can serve two masters, neither can a Christian participate at two religious tables or partake of two sacrificial meals. The Lord's Supper and all that it symbolizes is entirely opposed to the table of demons. Some of us may be thinking, how does food sacrificed to idols apply to us today? Well, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 33, but this time from the message. 
which is the Bible in contemporary language. So, my very dear friends, when you see people reducing God to something they can use or control, get out of their company as fast as you can. I assume I'm addressing believers now who are mature. Draw your own conclusions. When we drink the cup, the cup of blessing, aren't we taking into ourselves the blood, the very life of Christ? And isn't it the same with the loaf of bread we break and eat? Don't we take onto ourselves the body, the very life of Christ? Because there is one loaf, our manyness becomes oneness. Christ doesn't become fragmented in us. Rather, we become unified in him. We don't reduce Christ to what we are. He raises us to what he is. That's basically what happened even in old Israel. Those who ate the sacrifices offered to God's altar entered into God's action at the altar. Do you see the difference? Sacrifices offered to idols are offered to nothing. For what's the idol but a nothing? Or worse than nothing, a minus, a demon. I don't want you to become part of something that reduces you to less than yourself. And you can't have it both ways. Banqueting with the master one day and slumming with demons the next. Besides, the master won't put up with it. He wants us, all or nothing. Do you think you can get off with anything less? Looking at it one way, you could say, anything goes. Because of God's immense generosity and grace, we don't have to dissect and scrutinize every action to see if it will pass muster. But the point is not to just get by. We want to live well. But our foremost effort should be to help others live well. With that as a base to work from, common sense can take you the rest of the way. Eat everything sold at the butcher shop. For instance, you don't have to run an idolatry test on every item. The earth, after all, is God's and everything in it. And that everything certainly includes the leg of lamb at the butcher shop. If a non-believer invites you to dinner and you feel like going, go ahead and enjoy yourself. Eat everything placed before you. It would be both bad manners and bad spirituality to cross-examine your host on the ethical purity of each course as it is served. On the other hand, if he goes out of his way to tell you that this or that was sacrificed to God or goddess so-and-so, you should pass. Even though you may be indifferent as to where it came from, he isn't. And you don't want to send mixed messages to him about who you are worshiping. But except for these special cases, I'm not going to walk around on eggshells worrying about what small-minded people might say. I'm going to stride free and easy, knowing what our large-minded master has already said. If I eat what is served to me grateful to God for what is on, <clears throat> on the table, how can I worry about what someone else may say? I thank God for it, and he blessed it. So eat your meals heartily, not worrying about what others say about you. You're eating to God's glory. After all, not to please them. 
As a matter of fact, do everything that way, heartily and freely to God's glory. At the same time, don't be insensitive in your exercise of freedom, thoughtlessly stepping on the toes of those who aren't as free as you are. Try your best to be considerate of everyone's feelings in all of these matters. Amen. So can the Christian eat meat purchased in the marketplace, knowing that it could possibly have been sacrificed to an idol? Paul's answer is really quite simple. In today's jargon, Paul would have said, chill out, relax. The fact is, it really doesn't matter. And the reason is to be found in the ultimate origin of such food. God created it. And if God created it, we know it's good. And if we partake of it gratefully and with prayerful thanksgiving, we can be sure that it's sanctified. Paul tells the Corinthians to flee from idolatry. Does this mean that we should never go to dinner with an unsaved neighbor for fear that he might serve idle meals? The assumption here seems, seems to be that the invitation is to the home of an unbeliever and not to a heathen temple where the meal would be part of a heathen religious ritual involving idols. Paul's answer is that the Corinthians should eat all of it. Eating a piece of meat that was offered to an idol will not defile the Christian. What defiles the Christian is participating in heathen worship. If eating a piece of idol meat does not defile the Christian, there is no need to make an issue of it. This simply introduces an unnecessary insult to the hospitality of the host. Remembering Jesus' words from Mark chapter 7, verse 14 and 15, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can make them unclean by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that makes them unclean. While Paul is writing mainly about the subject of food offered to idols, the way, he, the way in which he states this principle, or whatever you do, in verse 31, suggests that it has a much broader approach. God's eternal plan is to bring glory to himself. The guiding principle by which the exercise of every liberty must be determined is that whatever we do, it must bring glory to God. Eating everything set before us at the home of a non-believer can bring glory to God because our presence is to be a display of his grace to lost people. Our every action should be done for the edification and upbuilding of others. For the lost, we should act in a way that most simplifies the gospel and the salvation of the lost. For those who are saved, our actions should be those which build up our brothers and sisters in their faith and which enhances their daily walk with him. There are two ways to look at this part of Paul's letter. You decide which way suits you. First, since it is clear that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, answering their question, 
about eating food sacrificed to idols. This was a problem in the Corinthian church. It is not a problem in our church today. So there we compare, compare this specific message about food sacrificed to idols in Corinth and the church today? The answer is no. The letter was written 2,000 years ago to one particular church about a specific problem they had 2,000 years ago. But another way to look at this is to interpret Paul's message to today's world. The idols of today are different than food sacrificed to idols in the Corinthian world. I think most of us, and I hope all of us, have no temptation to join in the worship of a man-made idol. But does this mean that we are no longer susceptible to the temptation to worship idols? All it really means is that we are not tempted to worship that kind of idol. An idol is whatever takes the place that God should have in our affection. Then all of us continue to be tempted to worship idols. If anything besides God gets our best thoughts, our tears, our feelings, and our energy, then we're just more sophisticated idol idolaters. So the first step for us, if we're able to follow Paul's command to flee from idol worship, is to realize that this is not an empty command for us any more than it was for the Corinthians. The first step is to recognize and acknowledge that for each one of us, there is in fact something to flee, perhaps many things to flee. Author Tim Keller wrote, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And Richard Keyes wrote, Rather than look to the Creator, Creator and have to deal with His Lordship, we orient our lives towards the creation, where we can be more free to control and shape our lives in our desired directions. An idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. All sorts of things are potential idols, depending only on our attitudes and actions towards them. Paul tells the Corinthians, you cannot drink the wine cup of the Lord and the wine cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's dinner table and the dinner table of demons. Paul states later on in this letter, in chapter 11, verse 28, a person must examine themselves and then eat the bread and drink the wine. In that chapter, he is talking about behavior at the Lord's table and what is going on with the assembly there and their disrespect for one another during communion. It's about the abuses being practiced in the church. Paul is talking about the visiveness, the selfishness, and the drunkenness happening at the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is pretty simple. It's not what we eat or drink, but why we do it. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's about him, not us. If we're focused on ourselves, 
then maybe we're doing it wrong. Communion is not a time for examining ourselves for sin. It's a time for remembering Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. To quote Bible Fellowship Assembly's book, Who We Are, on page 3, Basic Biblical Truths, number 11, it says, We believe that communion was commemorated by Christians in the early church on the first day of the week, and that it is a privilege and responsibility of each believer to heed the Lord's request, this do in remembrance of me. Jesus did many good things, but ultimately he came to die so that we might live. We proclaim, not mourn, the Lord's death by giving thanks. Communion is not a time for confessing sins, but for saying thank you, Jesus. Proclaiming the Lord's death ought to be an occasion of joy and celebration. We're sometimes told to examine ourselves for sin before taking communion, as though our sins disqualify us from coming to the table. But Jesus died for sinners. He died for the lost and the least, the damaged and the hurting. He died for the worst of us. If we think we have to clean ourselves before coming to Jesus, if we think the Lord's table requires minimum standards of worthiness, we have missed the cross. It's saying, thank you, Jesus, for dying so that I might live. On the cross, Jesus did away with our sins once and for all. And through his precious blood, we have been eternally forgiven. Paul is not condemning Christians, nor is he accusing the saints in Corinth of being guilty sinners. He is simply saying communion is a big deal. And we know this because of what happens to those who reject Christ's death. The Lord's Supper is a continuing reminder that there is forgiveness for the sinner and strength for the weak and the weary. If we truly enter into the spirit of the supper, we will have a heightened sense of our own unworthiness and of God's grace. The awareness of God's love for us ought to make it easier easier for us to love one another. Paul also wants to get this message across in our passage this morning. If our conscience is clear about anything we do, then why should we be judged by others? If our conscience is clear, at the same time, we should not be insensitive in our exercise of freedom and thoughtlessness about those who aren't as free, about those who aren't as free as we are. Or as Paul puts it in chapter 8, those who are weak. We must try our best to be considerate of everyone's feelings in all matters. And in the same way, if we are mature Christians, we are not to judge others because of the freedom they have in Christ. In whatever we do, we should do it all to honor God. We live because he lives. Paul is writing to Christians about the way they should act or not act, not about earning salvation. Romans 11, verse 6 
reminds us that if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. And when someone asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered in John chapter 6, verse 29, the only work that counts is the work of believing in the one he has sent. The greatest thing we can do is believe the good news of God's grace revealed in the one that he has sent. And believe that because of what Jesus has done, we are forgiven. We have been clothed with his righteousness and we have been adopted into his family. Joseph Prince said, the gospel is the gospel of Christ and everything is about Jesus. It's not the gospel of morality and character and it definitely is not the gospel of money and prosperity. But do you know what the gospel does? It produces all those things. The true gospel of Jesus Christ always produces godliness, holiness, morality, character, provision, health, wisdom, love, peace, joy, and much more. They all flow from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Robert Farr said, if the gospel is about anything, it's about a God who meets us where we are, not where we ought to be. And Max Lucado said, grace is everything Jesus. Grace lives because he does. It works because he works. And it matters because he matters. He placed a term limit on sin and he danced the victory jig in the graveyard. To be saved by grace is to be saved by him, not by an idea, a doctrine, creed, or church membership, but by Jesus himself, who will sweep into heaven anyone who so much as gives him the nod. <clears throat> and finally this morning, I'd like to read a passage by Julie Schwab from April 19th of Our Daily Bread. In 2020, an outbreak of the coronavirus left the world in fear. People were quarantined. Countries were put under lockdown. Flights and large events were canceled. Those living in areas were, with no known cases still feared that they might get the virus. Graham Davy, an expert in anxiety, believes that negative news broadcasts are likely to make you sadder and more anxious. A meme that was circulated on social media showed a man watching the news on TV and he asked how to stop worrying. In response, another person in the room reached over and flipped off the TV, suggesting that the answer might be in a shift of focus. Luke 12 gives us some advice to help stop worrying. Seek his kingdom, verse 31. We seek God's kingdom when we focus on the promise that his followers have an inheritance in heaven. When we face difficulty, we can shift our focus and remember that God sees us and he knows our needs, verse 24 to 30. Jesus encourages his disciples, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom, verse 32. God enjoys blessing us. 
Let's worship him knowing he cares for us more than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Verse 22 to 29. Even in difficult times, we can read the scriptures, pray for God's peace, and trust in our good and faithful God. So in conclusion, let us strive to lean on and trust in Jesus in everything. Let us put him first, because on that cross, he put us first. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area. Or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.